Welcome to the American Anthropological Association podcast miniseries in support of the 2022 annual meeting. I'm your host, Matt Arts, and on this miniseries, we'll be talking with AAA members about the theme of unsettling landscapes and how it relates to their work. We will also get their input on the greater Seattle area and what they think is important to see when you are in town for the conference. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Hi, everyone. I'm here today with Charles Menzies, professor of, at the University of British Columbia and a member of the Kitkatla Nation. Uh, he's also the founding, the founder and director of the Ethnographic Film Unit at UBC and the coordinator of an ecological anthropology research group at UBC titled Forests and Oceans for the Future. So, Charles, uh, thanks for joining us today. Would you start by telling everybody a little bit about your anthropological story? Sure, I'd be pleased to. It, um uh it's it's always fun i always kind of tongue-in-cheek tell people that the computer at simon fraser university assigned me to anthropology and that's only half false uh, because it was in fact a letter came in the mail after i'd done so many credits and it said your major will be anthropology sociology unless you decide otherwise and i thought oh sounds like a good idea so i have a little different kind of origin and i know a lot of colleagues and friends and even fellow students who had dreams of trekking over Tibet or going to Nepal or going to some other places. And for me, it was, I was always interested more about a, a methodological approach to understanding how people make meaning of the world. Uh, as an Indigenous faculty member today, an Indigenous person, uh, to a certain extent, anthropologists were always seen as some kind of busy people who turned up at certain seasons of the year. Often they were German or American and they came from far away and they asked peculiar questions. So I didn't necessarily have a desire to be a quote-unquote anthropologist until I got that letter in the mail. And then you know, one thing led to another. I went on to do a graduate degree at York University and then a, a doctorate at City University of New York and became more and more ensconced. So now I'm in the field where I'm professionalizing and training and mentoring people who want to be anthropologists. And so it's always, I find, a kind of interesting delightful and, and fun tension between that sort of background origin and the idea of what I'm ending up professionally doing at, at here at UBC in Vancouver. Um, also, it's, it's, we have this interesting dynamic in the discipline that drives people to do place studies away as, rather than study at home. And so my doctorate was done in the strange exotic lands in coastal Brittany in France. And most of my career has been about writing about a little bit of that, but mostly about my home community in the north coast of British Columbia and the relations between indigenous and non-indigenous people in this part of the world. And so you had said in there that, you know, when you were younger, you see anthropologists sort of arrive at a particular time. And so um, I guess maybe just tell us, like, how has the relationship changed over the years, broadly speaking? And you know, as uh, an Indigenous scholar now being one of those anthropologists, what do you try to do to not replicate the past? Yeah, I think there's a, a lot of changes. I mean, of course, <clears throat> I always like to go back to Kathleen Goff's, I think, important essay, originally published among a, lot, a number of different places, but my favorite version is in Monthly Review in the late 1960s called New Proposals for Anthropology. 
And that was part of an earlier wave of recognizing that the colonialized world was actually standing up and saying, we don't like it when people come in here and tell us what to do, how to run our world, to take control of things, set the questions, set the terms of engagement. And we've been many decades since that time, and there have been changes. I mean, I, I wouldn't claim it's perfect, but I think there's been changes. And one of the clear ones, at the very least, the people arriving to do research have a more nuanced understanding of the impact and the burden that they place upon communities. So they want to try to see how their work can be done in ways that complement and support what's already underway in First Nations and Indigenous communities. And I think that's a positive change. Um, I, I don't want to go all sort of critical take on this because I could do that direction, but I, I'd, I'd rather want to focus on the kind of the positive side that comes from it. But even as a university-based Indigenous researcher, I often find that I need to think very carefully about what I'm doing because even though I come from a community and I work and I'm collected, I'm connected to and related to people, I also carry the weight of the university on my shoulders when I arrive in community. And so I need to carry that with me, that idea in mind as well. And that sometimes makes it harder for the work that an Indigenous scholar does and also sometimes makes it easier, but it's at the very least, it makes it different. So we see things differently. Um, but that one of the things I do like about anthropology in, in particular is the notion that we can have a whole range of perspectives and outlooks on doing things. And while we might have common accept ideas underlying it all, we at least create an opportunity to respect and value a whole range of differences in perspective, outlook, and, and approach. And that is a strength, which is sometimes lacking in our society in general. So you said there, you know, it's, I think the wording was, you know, along the lines of it's not necessarily good or bad, just sort of different, right? And so tell me then, you know, with that in mind, um, how do you interpret the theme for this year of the conference? And you know, with that theme in mind, is there anything that sort of calls you to action or, you know, that engages you in a particular way? Well, the whole notion of unsettling is, is intriguing. I mean, the, of course, it, in the Indigenous world, there's been the idea about unsettling and the notion of settler and settler colonialism and that kind of disruptive play that is invoked there politically. And so there, there's an element to that that is appealing. I see it more personally as a discursive or rhetorical play, I'm less convinced it's useful analytically in my own work. I've been moving toward what I call the mundane or the banal, the regularization of everyday life. And so we've been going into the mountains in our home community and walking pl traces, places where people hadn't walked for three or four generations, and but trying to make it not so it's a discovery and something new, but rather move it to the background where it's completely unusual, or pardon me, completely usual. And we're and trying to find the nuance and the detail in that respect. So I, so I have this kind of interesting kind of te tension between the idea of the political act to unsettle people, where in my own political, my own research practice is moving toward the idea of trying to understand what it is like to be settled to be in placed, 
to be totally familiar and comfortable so you can walk without thinking where you are, but know intimately where you are. And so that, so there's a kind of back and forward there, uh, that that I see to it. Um, and as I say, it's, it's research against discovery, which is a deliberate kind of, uh, provocation as it, as it were to a lot of discussion today, everyone's filling gaps, finding innovations, doing, doing, doing new things, et cetera. And, um, so, but that's how I situate in that space. So do you think that somewhat of that mindset is coming from the, you know, previously sort of unsettled history of first nations. And so today you're sort of, in a sense, you know, almost looking to get back to, as you said, settled. Um, yes and no. I mean, one of my favorite non-indigenous anthropologists is Hugh Brody, who wrote a kind of companion, a sort of a end of career type book called The Other Side of Eden. And in that he suggests, not a necessarily new idea, but a, a useful one, that it's the settlers are the nomadic peoples. And then indigenous peoples are settled and located in place. And we, and there's this kind of misnomer effect. And the people who without homes are the settlers who are coming through. So they're constantly living a life of uns, being unsettled. And, and so, so I, I, and I think even through the period of intense colonialization, where there's been much disruption and people have been marginalized without necessarily being removed from place, still within our communities, we are in place. So, so, the, so the interesting thing from my vantage point, the unsettling is to unsettle the, the stability of mind of those who are actually benefiting from the colonial system and the colonial state. Uh, and it's unearthing and pulling back and to recognize the stability, resilience, and continuity of indigenous communities that are here, maintain lives and cultures and practices. Yes, there's been disruption and issues that come along with that. But nonetheless, throughout this entire period, we have remained settled in place in these practices. And that part of the the unsettling is really, I, I see it for myself, toward the colonized world. And so in a sense, anthropology needs a kind of disruption of its own sense of sentiment. It's idea that it can go to indigenous communities and drag data out of them for, the, for external uh, theories and models, etc. That basically, anthropology should perhaps turn more toward itself and study its own practices of how, recruitment of, of personnel, of training, of the notion of the focus upon the idea of discovery elsewhere is an inherently colonialist and exploratory notion set within the discipline of anthropology. And it's almost as though that is what I would argue would need to be unsettled. So I did say I wasn't going to try to be critical, and wouldn't you know it, I did come up with a kind of a, a kind of critique of the, of the discipline writ large. My apologies. No, 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 it's fine, completely fine. And it's an interesting contrarian opinion you know, to the way we maybe typically you know, think about some of those terms. Um, you, you, so speaking of being in place, sort of riffing off of that for a moment, for those who aren't familiar with the KitKat La Nation, um, you want to maybe just tell us, you know, where this place is, you know, right? Where, can you situate yourself? Yeah, so Kitkatla is part of, if you think of it as an anthropologist, people might know about the wider Simpson world, know about the Haida and the Tlingit, up in that confluence where Canada on the coast meets Alaska on the coast in that area, 
of, of the, the continent of North America. Uh, Kikatla are a seaward facing people. We stand on the extreme edge of the shoreline facing out into the deep water, uh, intensely maritime based. But just because we're facing seaward doesn't mean we turn our back on the land in the interior. Uh, but Kikatla Nation is about a, a couple hundred mile stretch of land from around the mouth of the Skeena River southward on that, what some people might know as the Inside Passage. Uh, but we basically include the Inside Passage and the Outward Passage, which is what is in English called Hecate Straits, heading over that space of water between Haida Gwaii and the mainland. Well, so I, I saw one of your videos on Twitter, uh, and you were you know, on the, in staying with the concept of sort of being in place uh, and the mundane, I saw you sort of following in the footsteps of what was presumably once, you know, human trafficked paths, but today was, uh, you know, well, it was, you're, you know, mentioning bears and, and, uh, you know, other animals that sort of traffic these paths today. And so um, tell us sort of, you know, a little bit maybe about, about, uh, the reason I'm bringing this up is the is the connection to film, and so obviously you're very interested in ethnographic film. Started the film unit at UBC. Um, that piece that I'm referencing, which you know maybe you can name for us, um, you know, is an example of that. And so, how do you, th- you know, why is film so important to you in this practice? So that particular film is walking the footsteps of our ancestors, and which were literally walking, as I say, into the mountains, following the trails that mountain goats have laid down, that people walked upon for many generations and many, many years. And film has a powerful medium. It's able to convey information and beyond the kind of academically precise. So our writing is very linear, very structured. Film, of course, is equally linear in its own kind of weird way and structured but it allows for the, the conveyance of sentiment, of emotion, response, feeling. We can show things in ways that we can't say them. And so that's where, for me, film has always been fun. Um, and I will confess to an earlier desire to go to the States, the NYU film program. But as a young Canadian, uh, looking at the cost of the, of the program and the, of going to a private university, even if it is in the service of the public, as its model says, was prohibitive. Uh, at that moment in time, and so as a professional, being able to then go and with it, with certainty, you know, start to learn to pick up film, and to explore that medium of expression. And so we we do film both in terms of what I consider the directorial cut, where I have a very clear vision of what is being said. We do community video, which is the sense that we basically are acting as a as a contractor to provide what is wanted by the community we're doing the film for. And then these little social vignettes that we release free that people can sample and resample and cut them and they take on a life of their own outside of either the community's claim for how they should work or my directorial voice. And um, I, I always try to pair the films with academic writing and public writing as well. So it kind of fits in a triangle uh, of, of sources. And so it's a kind of a compliment because they, they carry different types of things. So when we write pu- for public writing, like on blogs or public or, or popular magazines, things like that, we write in the, with a particular style in a particular way. Academic, we have our own particular audiences and that we're academics. So we need to do that. Uh, and the film, again, came, there is another th- source. And 
And I ha- will say that while it's not necessarily recognized in the same way academically in many ac- straight ahead research type departments, it's important to do, and I do it anyway, uh, because because it's fun. And of course, the, if some programs do rec- acknowledge this, and it's that's a whole different issue. That's that's sort of like whining about the way internal mechanisms work. But it's fun, and that's the other thing to do about it. I have to say because it's fun, and I'm right now teaching a course with uh, in the summer with a, with a group of uh, you know a dozen or so students doing their own ethnographic films, and it's always exciting to see people explore this medium and then take a bit of practice technical knowledge to apply to it. So it goes beyond the YouTube or the TikTok video, which artworks in their own right, but different than a, a sense of a ethnographic film. And it's fun. I just have to say, it's fun. As you said, you know, it can communicate something that writing by itself is not always able to. And so I'd be curious to know, like, in terms of uh, the work that you've been doing with the various First Nations and uh, and maybe, like, you know, with environmental concerns in the area, do you find film to be um, particularly useful for either of those you know, either of those subjects? I mean, we've used the film for for a number of different purposes you know, with, with Kit Katla over the years. So on one level, just documenting as a recording device. And of course, not just providing the raw footage, but documenting, say, government and business visits to the community and presentations in which we then edit into sort of packages to document that process as a record. As advocacy pieces in the political struggles around the oil pipeline that was going to be built a few years back and the ship, shipment of, of tar sands oil through our territories using film as a way to gain advocacy a- avenue into different different sectors both the general public but also with particular experts or decision makers and also in terms of a way of declarative statements for the community about rights and title issues and so we have one film called naming the harbor which is a direct provocation, an inter- intervention into a political debate between ownership of Prince Rupert Harbor, which nation owns it and how government should respond to it by drawing through the process of pr- in traditional protocols, but using the medium of film to bring these together and to do it in a way that we want to, we want to pull viewers in to watch and enjoy and to appreciate. So there's a whole range of ways film becomes a tool. And of course, we see this more broadly Many of the land defender groups are, have active videographers working with them and through them who are doing this in much more technically precise manner. But as a research-based academic, I find that this, these kind of tools are all part of it. And then thinking about how we put it together, being conscious of our approach, recognizing there's different types of film have different implications. And it allows for then an understanding of people. And, and I have seen it. We showed one film to a judge who was trying to make a decision. It was a, a commission. And you could see that it actually helped him understand the materials and the big reams reports and the testimony that was in front of him to see a kind of vision of the community from the community's perspective. And it put a life on it that he wouldn't have seen otherwise if he just read the documents. Uh, you know, one question I have there, I think that comes up maybe increasingly is preservation. And so it's, it is certainly one thing to record these today. And I, you know, you could probably make the argument that in a digital medium, maybe preservation is a little easier, but preservation isn't always structured, 
right? It's not always in a in a sense that it's going to live on in some kind of structured model that we can easily learn from and it could even go lost at some point in time for any given reason, right? We have something on a web server and it's not maintained for whatever reason. So is there anything, you know, when you're documenting like the KitKat Law Nation and you are, you know, essentially trying to maybe preserve like a practice or something, you know, in film, what are you, is there anything that you're doing to take it beyond that? Yes, we, I mean, and that really is the perennial problem we have with technological shift, change, and also the institutional capacity in terms of the technical capacity to hold and store and archive material. Uh, it's an ongoing issue. Uh, we're constantly, right now we're in process with the Kikatla Nation's research uh, unit, going through and checking all the different medium we have and re-digitizing re re it to newer versions so it can be kept and maintained. And that's a problem. I mean, I've been working with a, an, anthropo an anthropologist who, who he was a, did a graduate degree up with another community called Heisler Community near Kitimat, filming Ulican fishing in the mid-1990s. And he tried to get museums and archives to take on his material, and they, nobody wanted it. And so we're working with him, I'm working with him to re-digitize and remaster his, his original VHS-issued <laughs> video into a digital format but that's the problem and then of course how we maintain that and we have to keep rolling it forward and there is no simple solution this moment we think it's all of the obvious and easy because it's digital and sitting there but uh, i i always have worries that we're going to hit a moment where somebody's going to accidentally throw the wrong switch and everything goes goes dead so uh, we need we need lots of replication, and we constantly work with it. And you need to think about it too. And I also work because we have access to a major research library here in the department at UBC. And I also work with the different specialist librarians to get their advice and work with their offices to try to do stuff as much as I can, uh, because it is a critical issue. Uh, it's one that I don't think we'll ever firmly solve. But if we don't actually consider it while we're doing it. Uh, then we have a problem. And part of that doing is like always having duplicate copies so that uh, essentially I work on an idea of a licensing idea where the data from Kikatla belongs to Kikatla, but I hold copies and the backup that I have available. Also copies are lodged with the First Nations research offices. And then they work to do, try to do duplicate copies with other agencies that they're affiliated with. And that's about the best way we can do it these days. And, and then people talk and share amongst different different First Nations research agencies and universities the different types of facilities that are going forward. And, and that's a place where anthropology departments and anthropology museums and archives have a responsibility to take on the, some of the burden of support in the, those domains. And our Museum of Anthropology here at UBC has been trying to play some role in, the, in that with its, its community-based partners. You know, in British Columbia... Well, everywhere climate is increasingly a problem. Um, but of course, I, I believe in various places in Canada, you know, the problem is even accelerated to com compare to some other, you know, places. And so, um, how has in your career, you know, from, from what you've seen over all the years, what has the impact been on the way of life 
the first thing is that there are changes that are clearly occurring. Um, and so the first thing is, so things like people back home who collect seaweed, for example, there's a particular type of black lava or seaweed that is, that's harvested in May. And there's been changes because of changes in water temperature and water salinity in the ocean. The changes in the availability and the quality of the seaweed that's been harvested, which has been noted by long-term harvesters for many years. Um, and some, some time ago, we did a, a lesson plan for high school science students on looking at climate change linked to seaweed and using the oral knowledge, the sort of accumulated traditional knowledge of, of harvesters to understand these changes. So that's part of it. But we also know that it's often hard to parse out the immediate impacts of climate from wider socioeconomic processes that are, that are occurring. And, and in some cases, things like the introduction of refrigeration allows us to be skip over some of the problems of refrigeration of uh, climate change, which doesn't necessarily isn't necessarily a good thing to be honest, uh, because of all the problems with the, the meeks. You now dependent upon electricity, electrical power. It could be diesel generated power to run your freezers, and if your freezers fail, you have a food crisis in in community. But um, so there's those things. The other thing we've noticed is that doing the mountain walking, especially over the last few years, there's with the noted elevated summer temperatures and changes in the amount of rainfall being distributed differently, that the environment is starting to change. And so some of the key species that would be harvested or used are also starting to shift in their patterns as well. And all so all these things are coming together. Uh, in our community, it's not quite as intense as for some of the people in the Arctic, where there's very clear problems with permafrost melt, uh, changes in flows, uh, and ice cover, permanent ice cover, and things like that are changing. But it's, you know, even the urban areas, we're living with the heat dome from last summer and the cha- elevated temperatures. The building construction isn't su- situated for the changes that are predicted to be, to be coming, the ones that we've witnessed. Uh, <clears throat> So we, we're really all in the same bowl here. And, um, you know, when we see things like the Supreme Court in the United States of America decide to end the ability to have environmental protection nationally, uh, the rest of us do get worried. And it's kind of like thinking how short-sighted that is. It might make an immediate benefit for some businesses, but for the, for the entire humanity, that's a very short-sighted decision. Uh, no matter what the rationale for it. And so trying to figure out a way of connecting across these kind of differences, even if people don't think it's in their immediate interest, is really important. And, I mean, the one positive thing about anthropology for me is that it at least preaches, whether it achieves, but at least preaches an idea that we all have an innate capacity to understand each other and we do have enough capacity to get along. That's kind of seems to me at the core of a kind of Americanist anthropology, uh, which is, you know, a positive counterbalance to some of the more nefarious and sort of problematic things that we see emerging. Uh, So building on, you know, what you were saying with climate and how really it's a problem for, you know, for one's actions impacts another essentially, right? Um, In 2020, you authored a piece, you know, which spoke of engaged anthropology. And so, you know, what do you you know, building on what you just said about the capacity of you know, anthropology as a discipline, how do you see, you know, the future of anthropology and particularly maybe, you know, engaged anthropology? Yeah. 
I always have a tough time with questions like that. I'll, I'll be honest. Um, <clears throat> but of course I do have an opinion. I mean, I, I actually think that we have a kind of moral obligation to use our technical skills and abilities to make the world a better place. Now that sounds really, when I hear that, it sounds, wow, what a cliche. Who? It's like I'm out of a pageant of some sort and I'm saying, I want to make the world a better place. Well, I do. But I also think that the discipline itself has no inherent left, right, good side, bad side. It's a set of practices and procedures and institutional histories. But as individuals within this institution that called anthropology, we can actually use the technical capacity to make a difference. And that difference should start right where we're located in our departments, our places of work. And then from the places of work, it should move out to the places where we do our research and our work with. And then we should also see ourselves as a citizen of the world that we live within and we have an obligation there. And I, and I think our discipline does provide us with some skills. Some are unique, some are commonly shared with other social sciences but it gives us the ability to actually intervene into these things. And we should do so consciously, carefully, and with a sense of commitment toward a better world. And so that's where I see, uh, I would like to s have the future go, but whether anthropology as an amorphous body goes in any of these directions, I think it depends upon the people. I mean, you know, people like, uh, <clears throat> Uh, like Eric Wolf, I did studied with who I thought, who was willing to stand up to Margaret Mead way back in the late sixties, early seventies about ethics and the approach to how to how to work. Uh, people, you know, more recent, more recently, like some of my colleagues here, who a woman called Sarah Sarah Snyderman, who does work with in uh, Nepal, looking at disaster relief and work, which doesn't reach the big scales of, of attention, but actually shows the people are actually taking the theoretical interest and trying to make a difference. And not only does the work apply to where they're off in the field, but it actually has implications here. We're in a big, in the, in, in the, the American Pacific Northwest and the British, in British Columbia and Alaska, we're in a big earthquake zone. And so thinking about these sort of things, even for us, it's important to think about and drawing these kinds of work together is really important and, and quite useful. And so in there, you mentioned the Pacific Northwest, and I'd like to maybe close with that as, as a bit of a topic. So um, what is it about the Pacific Northwest, you know, aside from being there that, you know, maybe, you know, really calls you? Of course, I'm totally biased. I grew up in North Coast, British Columbia. I had a grandmother who had a, had a house and a garden in Marysville, Washington, just a few hours, just an hour or so north of Seattle. So I spent a lot of my young childhood in and around that area, going to fairs and things like that, and being even at Fourth of July festivals and with the requisite, you know, fried chicken and potato salad and hot dog kind of kind of meals. Um, so there, there's an awful lot about this place that's kind of unique. I mean, the, I, if we think of it as the Cascadia region of kind of mountains and coastline, there, there's a lot to draw it for there. It has an interesting ecological history. Uh, interesting, when you take a look at our sort of the indigenous adaptations in the, in this place, the amazing things of salmon. And of course, if people haven't been to Seattle, and I haven't been for a few years myself, but it is fun to go to Pike Street Market. Uh, and that's a little on the touristy side of things. It, it's probably not real in one sense. I mean, but, but we're anthropologists. We all know that tourism isn't real. It's a performative act or something. But the salmon you find there, are real and if you can get a piece of the salmon 
And if I, I would also suggest that I don't know if it's still there either, but there's a place that did mac and cheese in one of the little vendors along the Pike Street Market. And it's the most decadent, gooey, oily mac and cheese you can find. Um, maybe take a bite of your friends. Don't order a full order, but um, I would recommend that. But I mean, this is a beautiful part of the world. I mean, I, I think when you you get out here uh, and culturally, historically, politically, um, for every, I think something for everything. And this is where the Wobblies began. I don't know if people know about the international workers of the world. But or the wobblies because of course that whole tone, the term, and the idea of the wildcat strike, many ver- a particular version of it emerged out of here. Uh, so, yeah, I think it's a great place. Of course, where we take it now, I mean, it's quite as the population grows so extensively, and the ur- urban issues that 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 emerge from these zones. It's um, you know, the, in the Salish Sea, which links BC and Washington State together. Uh, with all the issues of pollution, the sort of that are going into there, the plastics, then the pharmaceutical drain off, the ca- even the caffeine loads are higher, which is kind of a bad joke. But in the in Puget Sound and and Salish Sea, uh, Chris is going. But it's yeah, it's it's a it's an interesting place. Thanks for you know the uh, the tips there. Uh, what people might want to look for when they're uh, in Seattle. And so Charles, I appreciate you taking the time today. Um, look forward to this year's conference and uh, maybe we can meet up there. Yes, indeed. Well, thank you very much. I got a kick out of having a chat with you and all the best. Thanks for listening. We look forward to seeing you in Seattle this November. For more information, check out the conference website at annualmeeting.americananthro.org. And if you like what you hear, please also check out the AAA podcast directory for other great anthropology podcasts, including my own Anthropology in Business and Anthro to UX. Thanks again and see you in November.